Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. It is also Monday. There's a lot going on today, so good morning. I'm going to lead off with a question, uh, not my normal question, which is where in the Word are you today, which is a great question and a question that I would love to have you consider. Where in the Word are you today? Um, Here's my second question of the morning. Are you looking really hard for evidence of God's persistent presence and his redemptive power and his all-sufficient grace? Or are you looking really hard for evidence of Satan's pathetic attempts to show off and subvert God's plans? Like, what has your attention when you are surveying the headline news or when you are surveying your social media feed, when you're looking around in the world, do you see the salt or do you pick the pepper? Are you looking really hard for God's evidence or evidence of God's persistent presence, power and grace? Or really, are you a pepper picker? Like you're just constantly looking for evidence of evil and satanic influence, which is out there and it's real and it, it, you know, it's clickbaity. Like I recognize that. So This came to mind this morning as I was reading headlines, and um, there are a lot of Christians very, very exercised about a new design on an athletic shoe that they're not going to buy. So the company is Converse. Converse is owned by Nike. Um, You might remember the old, you know, Converse Chuck Taylors, the Chucks. Uh, You might remember them as a relatively simple canvas shoe. At one time, they were fairly inexpensive. Well, Converse are no longer inexpensive. Uh, You might still be able to get a pair of plain Chucks for around 60 bucks, but the limited edition designer shoes, these like branded, these collaborative branded efforts, they go for lots and lots and lots of money. Often, uh, with a comma in there, so over a thousand dollars. So depending on how much you pay attention to such things, you may or may not have heard that there's a big controversy. There's a big brouhaha. People see Satan. Um, the recent, most recent design is called DRKSHDW, which you know, if you read Hebrew without the vowel points, you will recognize as dark shadow. So. Vowel pointing is an interesting conversation to have here as well. But all the vowels are taken out and you get D-R-K-S-H-D-W, which, if you put the vowels back in, is dark shadow. It is a line of chucks, a line of converse, by a designer named Rick Owens, about whom I knew nothing before Christians got all exercised that they were pretty sure they were seeing Satan in the pentagram uh, on the side of the Converse shoe that this person designed. So, reportedly, 
that's what's going on. People are, are upset that there's a pentagram on the side uh, of the Converse shoe. Now, just for a point of reference here, the Converse logo is a five-pointed star, which is, by definition, a pentagram. So if what you're exercised about is that there's a five-pointed star on the side of this Converse shoe, um, maybe you're a little late to the Converse logo party. But in this case, I will grant that the traditional five-pointed Converse star does have one exaggerated or elongated point, the one pointing down. Now, just think about that for just a minute. When you have seen the Star of Bethlehem represented over the traditional scene of the manger on a Christmas card, is it not a five-pointed star with one elongated or exaggerated point, the one pointing down? I mean, isn't that how that star has been represented in much art over the course of time? You know, the wise men, they knew where to go because, well, there was a star and, well, it pointed, it hovered, it stayed, it remained, and it pointed down to a particular place. When you think of that star, which has five points, one elongated or one exaggerated, and it happens to be the one pointing down, do you think of God or do you think of Satan? So Converse has said many things about the dark shadow line and all the brouhaha, And yes, uh, I will grant Rick Owens says that, yeah, yeah, I use the pentagram. I've used it for a long time. Um, It attracts adolescent occultists. Well, okay. But what other obvious association does a star have? So I just uh, would just love for us to consider today what we're looking for as we are surveying the headlines of the day and when we're looking, what we're finding. And as the people of God in the world today, let us be points of light, stars, brightly shining in a perverse generation, not picking out the pepper, but revealing, revealing that Christ has come and that changes everything. All right, next up, I got Sheridan Voicey. He and I are going to talk about Ah, the secret, the secret of friendship. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Sheridan Voicy, he is a BBC broadcaster. He's also an author and, you know, somebody I love to talk to. Sheridan, welcome back. <laughs> well, the feeling's mutual, Carmen. Good morning to you. Good morning. All right. In my friendship garden, how does my garden grow? What is the secret skill of friendship? Yeah, you know, I've get, gotten really interested in this topic over the last couple of years because, um, as you know, I've written a couple of books on when dreams don't turn out, you know, when we don't get what we want, when life doesn't go as planned. And as a result of write, write, writing those books, I've heard from lots of people, lots of people from the US, lots of people here in the UK, lots of people in Australia, Singapore and elsewhere, for whom 
life hasn't worked out. Maybe they didn't get the spouse they wanted. Maybe they haven't got the children that they wanted. The, the dream has broken. And the thing they keep on spiraling back to is I need some sort of secure base uh, to kind of live my life on. Now we know that Christ is the ultimate secure base. But the second point of that is friendship and how important it actually is to our lives. Now, here in the UK, some research came out recently. Actually, it was a couple of years ago, but some recent research has shown that it's gotten even worse since the pandemic that showed that about 25% of people in the UK either don't have a close friend or don't have any friends at all. Now, that's echoed in Australia. About a third of Australians don't have uh, a friendship group. And then it's also echoed in the United States. About 35% of adults over the age of 50 uh, are chronically lonely. I read another statistic the other day that showed that the amount of people who no longer have a close friend in the United States has quadrupled since 1991. So we've got this kind of crisis of friendship that's going on in much of the Western world. And I'm interested to know why that's going on. And I'm particularly interested to know what the solution to it is. Because it's just so key. So many of us need close friends. I believe it's part of how we've been made. And so, yeah, this is why I'm particularly interested in this topic. So, Sheridan, when you um, when you talk about the statistics, like, right, we need some specific data points. So let's take a very brief break. And when we come back, tell us about Mike and Miriam. I mean, I know that's what we're calling them today, but... Um, Let's get beyond like friendless statistics and let's talk about the reality of um, a, a, a real couple. Sheridan Voicey and I will be right back. We're talking with Sheridan Voicey. You can find him at the BBC Radio 2 in his program pause for thought he's written eight books including reflect with sheridan which we have talked about in the past he's currently working on a book about the power of friendship and today we're talking about the soil that makes friendship grow that um that secret or special um soil is friendship so sheridan tell us about mike and miriam Yeah, I spoke to Mike and Miriam just recently. Um, They had seen me on a TV show over here talking about um, my wife's and my childlessness, and they hadn't been able to speak to many people about their experience of that. So they reached out and we had a Zoom call. And the big thing that I already knew about them was the fact that their childlessness had kind of made them quite isolated. They don't have um, many family, and then they don't have children, and they're in their 60s. And so they were finding it very, very difficult to connect. But more and more, when I got into the conversation with Mike and Miriam, I just, my heart broke, Carmen, because he was a couple of people. And I've got to be honest, when I first did the Zoom call with them, I was kind of thinking, okay, are these are these socially difficult people? You know, the people that are going to find it hard to make friends because they don't know how to be interested in other people, or they 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 aren't very good at small talk. None of that was true. They were very empathetic people. They were um, quite fun to to talk to, but they couldn't connect with their churches. They'd been to three churches over the last nine years. Now, that's not a bad rate. They gave each church three years. They didn't just kind of go for a couple of Sundays, realize they didn't like it, moved on. They joined home groups. They invited people around for meals. But what they found was that their childlessness 
was was somehow a barrier to people being able to talk with them and them with with the other people that somehow people in their 60s um could only speak about their children could only speak about their grandchildren and weren't able to get beyond those things to actually find out who Mike and Miriam were so these people were feeling incredibly isolated um from a number of different different angles and you know what it was just really important to just have this conversation with them to let them know for a start there are other people who haven't been able to have children that have been able to live um, a fruitful life uh, but also to talk about just who they were you know the fact that mike is really into cinema and miriam loves ballet and they like going out to restaurants and those kinds of everyday details that make you and i personalities and that's the kind of thing that we should do so where is all this leading? We've talked about the soil of friendship. Here, I would say that the soil of friendship is actually hospitality, that we can talk about all sorts of wonderful verses in the Bible about friendship. I mean, Jesus defined friendship in John 15 as, uh, you know, the great act of friendship being that you would be willing to lay your life down for your friend. That's amazing. We've got numerous proverbs that talk about the power of friendship and the wonder of friendship and how, you know, a, a friend loves at all times, but a brother is born for a time of adversity. All sorts of wonderful, wonderful verses on friendship. But I actually think a key verse on friendship is one we probably don't even look at because it doesn't contain the word. And that's actually in Romans 12. And the Apostle Paul says, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. <laughs> Now, he also says in that passage, love must be sincere, be devoted to one another in love, never be lacking in zeal, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction. He's talking there about having bonds and ties with each other that are based around hospitality. Now, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm starting research on a, a, a big book project, which will probably be a big, a big media project as well on this whole area. And I keep on coming back to hospitality. If you want to turn an acquaintance into a friend, what do you do? Well, you might have met at work, then you invite them out to coffee. That's a small act of hospitality. What if you just want to then take that friendship a little bit further? What's the next thing? Maybe you go out to dinner together. That's our hospitality. Maybe you want to take that friendship even further again. You finally invite them into your home and there's hospitality. And hospitality is what ultimately uh, Mike and Miriam have been lacking because people weren't inviting them over for dinner, <laughs> inviting them out for coffee, inviting them out to have a meal and to get to know them. Uh, and it's the ultimate soil at which new friendships grow and old friendships deepen. So this is why I think hospitality is a key thing we should be talking about when it comes to making and deepening friendships. So I like the... Uh the wedding here of the conversation about friendship and um, cultivation, right? Like the soil that makes friendship grow. Um, because I do think that, you know, gardening is messy. We know that. But so is the cultivation of a friendship. And I also like the way that you have connected the passage in John 15 for us um, you know, where Jesus talks about what is real friendship and it means to lay down my life. And we we think about, you know, Jesus having done that and then we don't really take time to consider what does that look like in my everyday life. And so, you know, Sheridan, I will say that to be a friend today for me is going to mean that for a friend whose husband is dying, I'm going to have to lay down 
some of the things that I thought I was going to get done today because there are some things that need doing for her and for him. And my brother-in-law is in the hospital suffering with COVID. And in order for my husband to be able to tend to things on that front, I'm I'm going to need to lay down some of the things in my life that I thought I was going to get done today, that I thought, you know, on the first Monday in August, my checklist, right? So when we talk about laying down our life for other people, um, sometimes it is really dramatic, really, really, really dem- dramatic. Other times, I think most times, most days, when we're talking about laying down our life for our friends, What that looks like, small acts of sacrifice where I lay down my expectations or, yes, maybe some of my resources, certainly my convenience or my plans. Um, And that is then cultivating the soil of friendship. And much of that is hospitality. Like much of what I just described, I mean, taking soup to someone is an act of hospitality. I'm not having them in my home, but I am taking the gifts and the benefits of life and goodness into their life. And so sometimes practicing hospitality is not as complex as we try to make it out. I've also learned recently, Sheridan, that um, my expectations about how perfect my home has to be in order to invite someone in, like I have, I have, I had to get over that. I mean, I live on a farm. It's, there is dirt a lot. And even when my house is clean, there's still dirt. Like, there's still, like, you know, dirty boots on the front porch. We're never going to overcome that. And I can't wait until my house is perfectly clean in order to invite someone over. I just can't do that. I'll never have a friend. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Carmen, so much that you've just said there. Do you actually think that we have been maybe unduly influenced by those lovely Homes and Gardens magazines, you know, that have Oh, yeah, no, I know I have. Absolutely. (laughs) No question about it. Better Homes and Gardens. Everyone in Better Homes and Gardens is better than me. There's no question about that. (laughs) And me too. But, you know, here's the interesting thing. When you leave all that mess around, it actually gives us more cue points to get to know you. So when we walk into your messy lounge room, you know, know, your messy, you know, farmhouse uh, or my messy lounge room, whatever, well, what's lying around? Well, there's going to be boots. Oh, interesting. Well, that's a part of who Carmen is. There might be some books that are lying around, stacked around in half. half Oh, there might be. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> just a few. I bet, you, I bet you you and I, we should talk about books one day and what we're currently reading because uh, I think there'd be probably some overlap. But, yeah, there's going to be these things that actually give me cue points as to who you are. Um, there might be, you know, an old jumper that's lying around. Well, who gave you the jumper? There's probably a whole story behind the jumper. So, and as you go and do these acts of service for this friend of yours and um, for your brother-in-law and in, in enabling your husband to be able to go and serve your brother-in-law, um, these take the the friendship deeper. These are the these are the moments when we build deep, deep, deep bonds with each other. These are when we have acquaintances become friends, and in this case, friends become deep, deep, deep friends. I can think of moments where a friend of mine, DJ, came down when I'd gone through a particularly difficult time. He drove two hours to come and see me. We had a coffee in and after. He was a busy man. He had a family to look after. He took that time out to be with me when I was in need. That solidified our friendship further. So this is the thing, what Jesus was saying about laying down our lives. You're absolutely right. We don't want to take it so much that we see only the big sacrifices. It's actually the little ones where we let go of my plans for the day, how I wanted to spend my time, spend my money, whatever it might be. 
But the payoff is that then we we develop these wonderful connections with each other, which which are part of being human and part of experiencing God uh, between us, because you know we experience what it's like to be made in the image of God, experience His love and care through the love and listening and words of other people. Hey, we haven't forgotten that um, that Marin is still working on the front lines of uh, of COVID, and um, haven't forgotten the sacrifices that your family has made in the midst of all of that. So, encouragement to both of you today. Encouragement to you as you work on the next book on the power of friendship. And thanks for being our friend and sacrificing your time today to um, till this soil with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, no sacrifice at all coming. It's a lot of joy. Thank you. It's a joy. That's Sheridan Voicey. You can certainly find him online. Check out his book, Reflect with Sheridan. You can listen to him at Pause for Thought on BBC Radio 2. We'll be right back. In the Father's hands we know That a lifetime's not too long To live as friends Oh my goodness, I have so much I want to talk with you about today. My leftover list after the show today is going to be super duper long, but I'm going to cover as much as we can. So after months of negotiation, a bipartisan group of senators has uh, finalized a text of a roughly one trillion dollar, that's trillion with a T, infrastructure bill. Um, I take note of this. It is 2,702 pages long, this legislation, this proposed legislation. It includes federal funding for roads, bridges, and passenger and freight rail and electric grid um, and lots of other projects. It is possible that the Senate could still make amendments to the bill before voting, but here's the reality. Most of them will not have time to read it. So it would then require House approval, which I think is still in question because they're going to get a lot of pushbacks from progressives who don't feel like uh, the bill goes far enough. Um, But let me just settle in on this for just one second. It's 2,702 pages long. So as a point of reference, the Bible is 1,281 pages. So what are you going to read today in preparation for conversation? Is the Bible the foundation, the infrastructure of your life? Is it treating it as your own infrastructure bill. You got you got more time, or it, it would take less time, actually. It would take less time to read the Bible, 1,281 pages, than it would to read the proposed infrastructure bill, 2,702 pages. All right, uh, that has nothing to do with the conversation I'm about to have with Daniel Bennett from J- John Brown University and the Uneasy Citizenship blog. He and I are going to cover a range of headlines of the day. We'll be right back. You can be certain that one day your kids will realize the uncertainty of life. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. When I think about what kids view and hear today, it's no surprise that many kids entering adolescence are filled with questions. They're undecided about which path to take. They don't feel ready to face the world. And they're on the fence whether or not they buy into the stuff their parents taught them. The uncertainty can be overwhelming. Moms and dads need to be aware of this anxiety simmering beneath the surface. You have an opportunity right now to step in and calm a few fears. You can be one of the certain, predictable, and constant forces in your teen's life. When all else fails, moms and dads turn to Mark Gregston for help. 
Equip yourself with the wisdom you need to succeed at parentingtodaysteens.org. Joining me now, Daniel Bennett from John Brown University, the Uneasy Citizenship blog. Daniel, welcome back. Thank you. So let's um, we're going to talk about something going on in uh, in the L.A. school district, at public school district. Um, but let's back up and start with how it's supposed to work. So um, school choice means that in some places, in this case, uh, if a family decides to enroll their child, and we're talking here about low income, disadvantaged students, they choose to enroll that child in a Catholic school. That is in the L.A. public school district boundaries. The school district is supposed to pass along federal dollars for that student's education. Um, And in 2018, 100 schools uh, of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles received this Title I money. But in 2019, only 17 schools received the money. And so the Archdiocese sued. What in the world is going on here? This seems so obviously wrong. Yeah. So, uh, you know, at the root of it, there's this question of uh, to what extent should public money be spent on religious education? And I mean, as a question of choice, which is what uh, proponents of these programs are framing it as. I think that's right. Uh, this has been perfectly constitutionally acceptable for nearly 20 years now. The Supreme Court issued a decision back in 2002 where it said that a school voucher program in uh, Ohio uh, was totally legitimate, allowing families to choose private religious schools so long as essentially they were given the voucher and then they could choose where to spend it. They could go to any school in their area, public or private. And the Supreme Court said in that decision, this is a system of, I think the language was true private choice. And so for Los Angeles, if there's evidence that they're, you know, intentionally discriminating against these schools with the archdiocese, that's going to be uh, pretty heavily scrutinized. And so that's what um, apparently happened. The state of California is the one that did the investigation, and that's the report that we are reading from. And uh, the L.A. Unified School District, according to the report by the state of California, quote, has failed to provide equitable services to archdiocesan schools. The word archdiocesan, we're going to insert mm-hmm. back in because that's what they're talking about. Adding that the yeah. district engaged in a pattern of what it calls arbitrary decision. Um, doesn't It doesn't appear arbitrary. No. And uh, anytime you uh, hear the term arbitrary when it comes to constitutional protections, uh, you're about you're, you're getting ready to get smacked down a little bit. Uh, <laughs> government decisions treating people differently under constitutional protections uh, is going to be met pretty, uh, pretty strongly by the court. So I, it wouldn't shock me if eventually this does might take some time. But if this does reach the courts uh, and eventually maybe even the highest court uh, for this to be a quick overturn. Okay, something else that I um, read recently, and this is from research related to charitable giving. I'm looking at, you know, a headline that says that the share of households, so the percentage of households in America donating to charity has dropped to the lowest level in nearly 20 years. And yet, and yet, I am hearing 
from um, colleagues who work for nonprofits that actually giving is pretty strong. What what's going on here? Yeah. So, you know, without digging too much into the data, you can think of a couple of explanations to, to make sense of this. So first of all, uh, we could talk about the supposed decline of, of religiosity in the United States. And, uh, you know, as people maybe start to pull back from organized religion, um, maybe there's just less giving in general, especially to churches and, and whatnot. But the people who remain may be more committed than ever. And so you, you could start to see, even though you're losing total numbers of people giving, the people who are actually still giving are giving more. And so that's sustaining the, uh, the drop. Although I do think that social scientists have been studying this for quite some time in terms of a decline in social capital and the implications for what that means for charity and, and community organizations. And so we could be seeing that play out in real time. And so I think that you know, for those who are listening who say, hey, there are some nonprofit entities that I love um, and I want to be sure that they are fully funded, it may mean that those other things that people more broadly support for non-religious reasons, you know, those are the things that we're just going to have to leave to more and more secular donors um, because people who give out of a religious motivation to support particular ministries there's going to be a smaller number of people doing that, and so those who are doing it may have to increase um, their giving to it. I, I I think that is an accurate analysis. I really, really like that. One of the other well, headlines you know, so, that I sent – oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say also, too, um, you know, I've been reading some different things about this, and there seems to be a hesitancy, especially among uh, Christians, to invest in institutions, specifically religious institutions – uh, because that's a longer term investment, right? Where maybe you could donate something, especially this, you're seeing this in terms of political giving, where if people are donating to campaigns or donating to political action committees, and you might see more of an immediate return on that given an election is only two or four years. Investing in institutions and religion, I mean, you, it, it's like the parable, right? You might not see the return, um, but these, ins- these, these investments can be longer term. And so I think it might be harder to get people to do that. Yeah, I heard a conversation yesterday, um, a young woman actually saying, you know, I've just come, I've already come to the place in my life where I just recognize that the seed that I received was, you know, cultivated and yielded by the life of my grandmother, um, who never got to see the fruit that's now being borne out in my life. And I just, that was just one of those things where I'm like, that is just so true in terms of um, charitable giving as well. Like, those are the kinds of eternal investments that we don't, we don't necessarily see the fruit of in our own life, but um, you know, we trust that God's going to bring himself a yield in the future. Daniel, let's take a very brief break. When we come back, I want to talk about plagiarism and sermons and the intersection of this really robust conversation happening across the country. Um, is it plagiarism or do sermons fall into some kind of unique category of interpretation and, and speech? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is a new All right, to tee up a conversation about sermons and their content, I want to read just a few verses of Scripture from 2 Timothy chapter 4. The Apostle Paul charges Timothy, next-generation preacher, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge the living of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. 
Be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itchy ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Um, All right, so Daniel, let's talk about what is going on, particularly in American Christianity, but elsewhere as well, Um, sermons and the charge of plagiarism. Bring people up to speed on this story. So there were a couple of of, uh, prominent pastors in the Southern Baptist Convention um, one of whom, uh, I believe it was Ed Litton, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Ed yeah. Litton, in, in some of his sermons, it, it appeared that he had borrowed phrases or structures from J.D. Greer, the former uh, president of, of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, in his sermons. And so that was met with criticism that he was plagiarizing and not giving attribution to Greer. Um, and, you know, I think Litton addressed this pretty well, but it, it, it sparked a larger conversation about whether and to what extent pastors should be borrowing from each other uh, in terms of sermons. And that yielded an even greater conversation about, is that dishonest, right, to pass off words uh, or or at least represent certain words or or structures in a sermon as your own? Um, So that's the basic gist of what's going on. Um, My initial thought is uh, this strikes me as different uh, than the type of writing that I do or the type of writing that a lot of people do where you get in serious trouble for plagiarizing or copying or not giving attribution to sources or other writers. When you quoted that uh, scripture from Second uh, Timothy, uh, there's something greater at stake here, right? And so if someone has a really strong way of saying something, I'm not sure that plagiarism should be at the top of the conversation, right? When we're talking about spreading the, the good news of the kingdom. Um, that, those are my initial two cents, but I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Well, I have thought that every time I see a reference to the Good Samaritan in any piece of journalism, I could start screaming plagiarism. <laughs> like any, I mean, so, you're yeah. going to, you, you better refer to the flood as the deluge or some other language, because if you refer to it as the flood or you refer to something as Noahic, I am going to start screaming in the culture, you crazy nitwits, that's from the Bible, and you better give God the credit due his name. I mean, I think when it comes to sermons, it's the preached word, and it better plagiarize the Bible, and it better sound a whole like what a whole lot like what every other preacher is saying. If it's too unique, it's probably false. Well, that that statement from Second Timothy, I think, was right on, and it's just an excellent reminder of the timelessness of Scripture. Paul was addressing Timothy in the in the same types of contexts that that we are in today in 21st century America, talking about teachings that you know appeal in some other ways that are essentially myths, but scratch an itch that we you know might not be getting from from the holy inspired Word of God. Um, and so, I agree with you 100. percent I do think. Uh, you know, and just drawing on my own experience in my church, uh, our pastor regularly draws on other writers and pastors mm-hmm. of old. Um, now he does say, you know, you know, you know, I'm borrowing from so and so here. But even if he didn't, I'm not sure who's supposed to be offended. 
I'm not sure right. he's supposed to be, uh, you know, taking advantage of in that situation. He's not making money off these things. Right. So this proper attribution, well, okay, the not making money thing is probably a part of the growing conversation. There are people whose ministry platforms are making money because their sermons are not the intellectual property of their churches. Like they've con- they've contracted with their churches in such a way. Like there probably is some weird conversation about that to be had. Um, mm. That's not this conversation. So, um, right. but the the plagiarism part um, and the attribution part. I just feel like every person who claims to be speaking on behalf of God better be most concerned about the author. Um, And it's not and it's not us. I mean, anything creative that we come up with and especially in the context of a sermon where you actually claim to be speaking on behalf of God, speaking the words of God to the people of God as a conduit of the very word of God, like you better not be trying to claim, well, I bet people better be quoting me. I mean, that seems to be completely outside of the spirit of what pastoral preaching and sermonic, the sermonic exercise is even all about. Well, and I'm, I'm not a pastor. I, I don't, I don't claim to speak without authority. And I'm very thankful that I don't have to speak without authority. The pastors that I, that I've known in the past, including our current pastor, I know approaches every Sunday morning with, with trembling, knowing that he is exactly. speaking to God's people. And there is, there is a serious responsibility with that. And so I think I think there are, like you were saying, larger concerns about um, mon- the monetization of, of 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 sermons and these kinds of things. That that is a different conversation. Um, but when it comes to uh, our first instincts, right? If we if we hear a sermon and say, "Oh, that sounds awfully familiar to this," I wonder if there was something nefarious going on. I don't think that should be our first impression. I don't think that should be our first mm-hmm. gut reaction, right? We should be thankful that. Um, we're hearing the word of God in, in, a, in an effective way and, and approaching it that in that direction. And again, I'm not a mm-hmm. pastor. I don't I don't I don't claim to speak for that for that uh, crowd. But as someone in the pews, um, it seems like a case of misplaced priorities. Yeah, well, that's why I wanted to have a conversation with you instead of with one of the pastors at issue, um, because I do <laughs> think it gets really, really complicated uh, sort of as a conversation on the inside of um the, the the clergy click, I mean, for lack of a nicer way to say it. So, um, all right, uh, you are going to teach a course this fall on conspiracy theories. Um, talk with us about fighting conspiracy theories inside of our churches. Yeah, there's been a lot of stuff written about this uh, in the last uh, several months, up to a year, not surprisingly, I don't think. The last time I taught this class was in the spring of 2019, and it seems I had to totally redo my syllabus for this time around. Uh, Things have changed. Um, But this is where the church can really step in. Uh, You know, I think there is an appeal, and and again, I hate to keep going back to the passage that you just just referenced, but it's so relevant. Um, There are things that, you know, may appeal to us in our worldly in our worldly identity, right? Oh, well, that that strikes me as uh, desirable, or that strikes me as, as a good explanation for things, when we should be much more concerned with seeking out truth. Um, we shouldn't be concerned with digging or digging around and finding the explanation that justifies our, our prior assumptions. And so I think it's where the church can really step in, and not necessarily preach against conspiracy theories every Sunday, but really 
get back to the primacy of Scripture, get back to the the importance of seeking truth in all that we do as believers, um, but doing so with gentleness and respect. Um, one thing that I think works really well, if you do find yourself speaking to people who have viewpoints that you would consider conspiratorial or kind of fringe, is not to say, you know, here's why you're wrong, here are the facts, here are what the experts say, but I think really good uh, approach, and I've read this before, is try to meet them where they're at and say, what, what appeals to you about this? Why do you think this is so appealing? Like, what is convincing about this? And try to get at the root, right? Is it fear? Is it anger? Is it frustration? And then you can have, once you get down to that root, you can maybe try to build up a little bit more. But I, I mean, I've, I've, I've seen it. I don't know. Most of your listeners have too. Just saying, hey, I have all the sources. You're wrong. That's not going to change anyone's mind. Right. Yeah, that's not persuasive at all. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, Daniel, as always, thank you so very much. That's Daniel Bennett from John Brown University. Let's be praying for him and everybody else headed back to the classroom in the next few days and weeks. He's at John Brown University. You can also find him on Substack. His blog is called Uneasy Citizenship. We'll be right back. All right, so I want you to just pause and consider again those words from the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy. Like, what voices are you listening to? How are you determining um, what is and what is not the truth? Are your ears itchy? What does it look like for each and every one of us to be prepared, to be prepared to preach the word, prepared in season and out of season to correct, rebuke, and encourage one another with great patience and careful instruction. We do live in the midst of a time when people are not putting up with sound doctrine. Instead, suiting their own desires, they are gathering around themselves a great number of quote-unquote teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And so how do we speak truth into the midst of that? How do we see the difference between truth and myths? How do we keep our head in all situations, as Paul says, enduring hardship, continuing to do the work of an evangelist? You know, the Great Commission is not fully accomplished. We're getting there, but we still have duties of ministry to discharge in this generation. Let us, like Paul, be poured out like a drink offering. Let us fight the good fight and finish the race and keep the faith. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.